This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert Alex Palmer. Alex is the author of the book The Santa Claus Man, The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man and the Invention of Christmas in New York. His writing has appeared in Esquire, Smithsonian, Slate, and many other outlets. Let's hear what he has to say about John Gluck and the Santa Claus Association. Hi Alex, we're so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So I was hoping that we could start off by having you tell us what sparked your interest in John Gluck and his incredible con. Yeah, it was actually uh, started because Gluck is actually a family member of mine. He's uh, my great granduncle. And he was sort of part of our family lore going years back. We'd heard about this relative who had answered letters to Santa that kids had sent and had otherwise been going to the dead letter office. Um, and it was this sort of heartwarming tale we'd always known. And I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about it. And then in, I think it was like 2010, my my uncle had mentioned it offhand. And I was like, 
that might be like a good article at the time I was like freelance writing for a lot of outlets. I was like, I bet that's, there's a good story there just as a little historical uh, article about, you know, this fun episode. And as I started reading into it, I realized, you know, not only was this true that, that we did have this relative who had started this organization, but then uh, there was actually a, a sort of a ignoble downfall to the whole thing. And it turned out there was some darker uh, elements to the story. And uh, as I started digging into that, I realized this was such a rich story and gave an, an opportunity to look into like the history of Christmas in New York itself, kind of in, in bigger terms. And uh, that's where it, it really kind of snowballed uh, from there. Wow. So you had no idea that he was actually running a con. No, it was always known in our family as this was a, you know, just a, a you know, this lovely little charity that had, had been started. And even the details of it, we didn't know a lot about, which turned out was kind of the case of the, the folks uh, at the time as well. Uh, there weren't a lot of questions asked. Uh, and then uh, when I realized there was this sort of darker side, that actually got me a lot more excited. That seemed even yeah. more fun. <laughs> <laughs> So could you give us a rundown of the history of writing letters to Santa? How and when did this become a children's Christmas activity? And what were some of its challenges? Yeah, I mean, it really started some of the, the earliest letters that are documented. It goes back to like the early 1800s that, that you really have uh, documented cases of, of letters and correspondences with Santa. And actually it was usually letters were coming from Santa at the time. Parents would sometimes write letters in the voice of Santa Claus, encouraging their children to behave well. And if you do this, then I'll, you know, you'll get goodies or I hope you've been, you know, a good boy or girl. Um, and then over time, the kids would write letters kind of in the, you know, mid 1800s, the, that would usually just be left on the, on the, the, you know, the, near the chimney, maybe at the hearth or, or sometimes in a shoe, uh, where it would be less, usually just kind of a, uh, talking about what they'd, you know, done that year. And it was almost, uh, uh, you know, just kind of a, a an account of their, you know, good behavior, or if they'd done something wrong, kind of even a confession, sometimes you'd, you'd see in these letters. Um, but as the, you know, international or, or um, the, you know, federal postal service became uh, more widespread during that era, then it became natural to drop those letters in the mail. Uh, the postman would take it to, you know, these fictional addresses, children would usually write on it to, to even just to Santa or the North Pole or Cloudland or Iceland or what have you. Um, and then when it really took off was when kind of toward the latter half of the 19th century, when a lot of newspapers would start publishing these because uh, either they would be, you know, forwarded to the newspaper from the postal service or the, um, the, the, you know, they would somehow, otherwise sometimes the, the, the parents would send them into the newspaper. Uh, and then, the the word got out that you know if you wrote a letter to Santa then there was a chance that might get answered because sometimes these would appear in the newspaper and people would actually respond and give you know send along gifts so uh, then it really took off um, unfortunately the post office department didn't really have any means of delivering this these letters sometimes the local newspaper would be an option but more often than not they would just not know what to do with them consider it an undeliverable address and send it on to the dead letter office where it would be destroyed. 
what is the solution then that the postmaster comes up with for for this, you know, holiday conundrum? Yeah, they kind of went back and forth. There was actually a very brief period in, in 1906 because there was a kind of a, a discomfort with the fact that these children's wishes were being destroyed. It just seemed wrong. So the press, a lot of, you know, like the, even the New York Times was getting in on criticizing this practice saying, surely there must be a solution of some kind. So they they tried a couple different things and eventually kind of settled on uh the the that they would allow local charities if they wanted to with the approval of the local postmaster general the lo- local postmaster uh they would allow that group or that individual to respond to the letter so it was kind of a locally focused uh approach on a but that was the sort of federal position. So uh, that was in 1912 that the, the post office department finally settled on that as the policy where you're nationwide. If uh, somebody wants to answer these letters, they can do it, whether it's a newspaper or, you know, a really generous individual or a official organization. Um, a lot of legitimate or established charities weren't very interested because they tended to look on this skeptically saw that, you know, there's not a, there wasn't a lot of validation of whether these children were really in need, whether it was even a children, right. Child writing the letter. So they kind of stayed away from it. So it tended to be more, uh, you know, not necessarily vetted or, or experienced charities that would take that over in New York city though, you know, the biggest city in the state, uh, in the, in the country, nobody, uh, put their hand up in 1912. Nobody volunteered. Uh, and the, the New York Times actually had a headline that year saying Santa Claus, a tardy saint uh, for not, there was no no New Yorkers who were generous enough to, to offer it even after this big you know push to release the letters. And that's where in 1913, uh, John Gluck uh, realized this was a great opportunity for, for him. So I'd like to get some background on, on him uh, because I know this is where he comes into the story. Could you... Tell us, you know, where he came from, who he was before he went into the Santa business. Yeah. So he, Gluck was, was the oldest of five brothers. They grew up in, in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood in Brooklyn and then had moved out to New Jersey. And his dad was a customs broker, ran his own business doing that, uh, dealing with like, you know, exports, imports, that sort of stuff. Not the most exciting thing. And Gluck was kind of positioned, uh, as his heir in that, uh, business, that family business. He, uh, started working kind of in his late teens, early twenties in, in the customs broking business. But you already see kind of early disinterest in that or a greater excitement around uh, kind of more sensational opportunities. He actually uh, would sort of sort of forwarded press stories of there was a couple incidents uh, that he you know was involved in uh, early on in the in his customs broken career where he was tapped by a you know a wealthy um, uh, client of theirs to intercept a, a, a his. A uh, child that was uh, eloping with with another uh, with with a, with a, with his girlfriend, and Gluck had to uh, intervene. Which it was kind of strange. <laughs> Why was he even involved in this? But he made sure that you know this story was uh, published. So uh, he was involved in that. And then there was a few other things. He actually became a um, the main pu- pu- uh, publicity man for this 
the first bullfight uh, in in the country that was took place at Coney Island. Uh, it kind of ended in disaster, but it got a lot of press uh, as the bull escaped and uh, nearly uh, endangered a few people. And the SPCA got involved, but Gluck was uh, one of the the kind of the main architects of the whole um, you know publicity around it. So he really loved that side of it and was looking for opportunities to get more in in that kind of area, kind of get his name out there. So what is it that compels Gluck to then sign up to, uh, you know, write letters as Santa? Yeah, it's hard to say, you know, what what it was specifically. He he did always have this uh, love of the holidays, love of the the theatrics. He was always known as a great storyteller, uh, both professionally and, uh, you know, among the the family and and friends. Um, So this specific cause, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what exactly it was. Um, He actually was also born on Christmas day, interestingly enough. So, you know, to talk to him, it was that he, uh, you know, was sort of, um, you know, almost uh, uh, fated to play this role, but something about it that I think it was really just came down to being such a great story. He, he worked, um, you know, with his business experience, he did see this as like a, a management uh, challenge as well. He thought this could be a great opportunity to not necessarily start a whole charity where you had to request the donations and go through all this uh, red tape. But he thought that what would work really well with this is to s- turn it into this kind of crowdsourced approach where you just say, hey, we've got the letters. If you're interested let us know. We'll get you. We'll send you the letters. You can then uh, make the donation yourself. You, uh, you know, to these New Yorkers that want to answer the letters, they will be able to make that personal connection. Maybe even go to the door, uh, you know, of the kid that wrote the letter and bring them the the gift they asked for. Uh, and this really heartwarming exchange that way that is much more direct, doesn't require an elaborate bureaucracy behind it, and that was appealing to Glock not only because it would be easier to run that than a traditional charity, but also he thought that it would kind of show uh, his sort of management prowess that way, that he could kind of come up with this really creative, low overhead approach and, you know, uh, answer a lot of children's wishes in the process. Wow. So how does the first year go for for Gluck and the Santa Association? Uh, better than they expected, but also that made things more challenging because they, they set up shop just in the back of one of his business friends was uh, this guy, Paul Hankel, who who um, was running, he had previously run Keene's Chop House and then Wood Later, which is still a New York institution. But he kind of set off on his own and started his own little steakhouse. Uh, and Gluck uh, got a little office space in the back there, him and a handful of volunteers. Um, and they set up shop. They once he got approval from the local postmaster, which was surprisingly easy, uh, he didn't have to, you know, be a sort of vetted charity beyond just sort of saying, hey, I'll do it. Um, they started sending letters there and then the volume was pretty substantial. They had a lot coming in um, and they were, uh, so they they set up shop there. Uh, both the amount, then the, there was immediate press interest in it. Just the fact that somebody's going to be playing Santa Claus to all these children's wishes was a great story. Uh, but then that led to more people writing letters. And once that there were got out that Santa was going to answer letters, 
parents were making sure their kids were, you know, writing their wishes in there, that this was getting popped in the mail. Um, sometimes they would address it to the Santa Claus Association itself, uh, as or, you know, any other address where Santa was clearly the intended recipient would go to clock and his uh, team of volunteers. And from what I heard, he kept pretty good uh Book. He, his books were really tidy as to what the kids wanted, what their addresses were, making sure that he um, that there wasn't a lot of crossover between siblings, I guess, multiple siblings writing. Right. Is that right? Yeah, that was one of their big pushes at the beginning when they first launched this, particularly the first couple of years, this real focus on record keeping on that's right, not making sure there's duplicate requests or that one child that requests in one letter gets a, a you know, that the, the, they're also getting gifts from another. They even would get the local Boy Scouts would go and investigate some of these uh, questionable cases to make sure that they really needed uh, the the things they were asking for. So they, they sent out these scouts to go to addresses. It's not clear that they went to every address. I don't think they were that comprehensive, but they went to enough where maybe it seemed like the kid, uh, you know, it was written on particularly, uh, you know, gold, uh, you know, kind of like nice stationery uh, if that might be a, 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 a raise a red flag that maybe this kid doesn't actually need, uh, you know, need the, the charitable assistance. Uh, so they would actually send these Boy Scouts out to sort of verify whether the kid actually wrote the letter, whether they actually were needing the the support. So there was this very thorough approach. They also had to make sure there was no money. Sometimes people would include little pennies, you know, kind of bribing Santa. Uh, so they had to make sure there was no, no money in there. Um, and that, uh, so they would have these verification processes to be sure that the letters were, uh, you know, authentic and that the gifts were, uh, it, that they were worthy recipients. And how does this grow within, you know, the next two years? Yeah. I mean, it was just such a great idea that these letters were being answered that that got a ton of press the first year. Just the fact that this was happening was, was, was really appealing, but it did and as a publicity man, that was one of Gluck's biggest focuses. Actually, right after the new year, the New York Times did a large profile on him as a business savvy, his sort of management skills. It was the, I think it was actually headlined, uh, um, something like, you know, played Santa and solved an economic problem. I think they, they called it. So it really focused on the management of it. Um, and so that was, there was a number of like aspects to the story that were really fascinating, but, um, because of the volume of letters and they did actually still have to pay for the postage that would, um, send off these, uh, you know, the responses that Santa would send to the children and those sort of things. Um, there was some need for funds. So Gluck would start tapping local celebrities and, and other, uh, influencers of the time. So they had, a um, uh, John Barrymore was in a, a major production at the time that uh, they did one of their nights was uh, went to the to the all their proceeds went to the Santa Claus Association for the, for that night. Um, they got some of the uh, movie stars of the silent era. You know, this was still pretty early, and in, in, this was in 1914, so there was still uh, before the era of talkies. But they got a few of the you know most recognizable people to come to, to the Santa Claus uh, Association offices, which the second year was in the Hotel Astor's uh, basement. They went there and were photographed you know, reviewing the letters and, you know, answering a couple of them. Um, and 
and found other ways to kind of uh, get a gin up publicity around the event uh, of the year. So um, one of the other things they did was connect it to the war. At the time, there was a lot of, this was sort of the, the lead up and then the, the first year of the World War One, which the U.S. wasn't involved at that stage, but it was certainly the top story covering all the front pages of the paper. So Gluck made a uh, a push to kind of connect the association with these charitable war efforts saying that children were going to uh, they were going to coordinate uh you know a, th- a million prayers from from children uh for for peace uh on Christmas day uh and kind of helped orchestrate this i doubt it uh, it's very questionable that it got anywhere close to a million but there was this kind of campaign uh that the Santa Claus association was connecting its name to of you know we're we're helping answer these children's prayers. So we're asking the children to send up their prayers for peace. Uh, and so there was these really nice uh, stories that they were helping to, you know, create and, and, um, and, and foster. Um, so that kind of helped. And, you know, the group, because they still had permission from the post office to answer Santa's letters in New York city, um, there was, it was a, 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 a steady, predictable stream of letters that were going to be coming in every year, uh, regardless of how much publicity the group was getting. But that only ginned up further. Now, in 1915, Gluck announces that he's got a new mission and he's building the Santa Claus building. Uh, what what are his plans for that? How how does he go about trying to secure funding for it? And also, how, how is the idea received by the general public? Yeah, so in twenty, and that was kind of part of this. That was almost a natural next step after the tons of attention the group had gotten its first couple of years, but it did sort of start tapering off. Uh, and one of the 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 big headline grabbing announcement from the group's third year was that. Not only, you know, have they have they had a successful uh, year again of answering thousands of children's letters, but on Christmas Day he brought journalists into the association offices, and which that year was in the Woolworth Building, the tallest building at the world uh, in the world at the time, uh, and announced that they were going to be creating a Santa Claus building that would be the international headquarters of basically children's wishes. It was going to be not only the Santa Claus Association there, but they would have this elaborate toy expo uh, on one level. There'd be restaurants, there'd be uh, research into, uh, you know, the, the, into toy manufacturing, kind of a, Sort of a, 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 a both a combination of of you know uh, education research and just a fun place to go. They would also have a massive stained glass window of Santa Claus and a giant Christmas tree at the front. It'd be a year round Christmas headquarters for the world, uh, and it got a, a ton of attention. People loved this story. Uh, you know uh, the headlines. You know had all kinds of uh, comments about we're going to be having a you know Santa's head new headquarters in New York City and. This is where, you know, the letters can be sent from all, not only throughout New York, but all around the world can come to this headquarters to be answered. Um, and when asked about, oh, the, there was just the tiny detail of 
how much it would cost, which is Gluck said it would be $300,000 to be able to afford that, uh, which he uh, assured uh, that would not be hard. We just need to have the, you know, the, the mothers and the good hearted people of the world would contribute. Clearly, this is such a noble cause. And the uh, journalists that covered the story seemed to agree with him. There was actual uh, lines in some of these newspapers saying this, this seems like a great idea. You know, it wasn't even opinion pieces. These were news reports covering it seemed to be fully in support of this as just a great idea that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, we'll figure out the, the money at some point. But <laughs> there, there was not really much further digging that went into the money itself, the fundraising, but uh, it basically put out the call to anyone interested can cut a check and uh, help support this noble cause. They could get their name in the Santa Claus Association started a, an annual uh, that same year where they would talk about their the, the officers of the organization and the generous donors, and they would even sell ad space. So this was a way that they could be acknowledged for their uh, donations to, toward the building as well. Um, but there were not a lot of questions asked and not a lot of details provided about how much uh, money this would ultimately cost or how it would be paid for. And when the money comes in, where does the money go? Similarly, there wasn't a lot of accounting. As 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 uh, careful as Gluck was during that first year or two, and how important it was for this record keeping that he uh, much uh, you know much uh, discussed uh, need for this kind of uh, having clear documents around this around the money there wasn't a lot he he would ask for donations within the first season when the whole plug you know the whole pitch was that this was no overhead this was not requiring much money he was already asking for funds to help pay for the uh postage and then for the office supplies uh, so it's, and then it would be you know contribute to the for the Santa Claus annual and the other aspects and now the Santa Claus building that would be paid for. So there wasn't a lot of records around it. He would just keep asking for more money and and asking for, you know, some people would um, want to donate, but they would say, well, what if I, could I just cut you a check? You know, they might would want to get in the whole spirit of answering a letter themselves. So they would say, well, why don't I send you money to answer, to answer yourself? And increasingly they started allowing that to happen, checks to be cut directly to the association. There wasn't a lot of tracking of where the money was going or how it was being spent. But at the time that was kind of the norm. Charities in general weren't very highly regulated. It wasn't something looked at. There wasn't even really a designated person uh, looking at that in New York City. So a lot of times it was basically, well, as long as some of the money's going to the cause, then then that's the main thing. Could you tell us about the jazz age and how this time period contributes to Exactly what you're talking about, furthering, um, perhaps selective accounting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was really, you know, this was a time where mass media really took off, where film really was 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 on the rise, where these shared stories, national stories were becoming more the norm, but also uh, where there was a lot of incentives for storytellers to maybe tell really entertaining, not always, you know, sticking to the facts type of tales as well. So, you know, this was really the heyday of, of tabloid newspapers in the city. Um, there was real incentive for these, uh, for showmen at this time. It was, it was a great time to, to be that. Uh, and it was also a time where 
really the jazz age, one of the, you know, the entertainment and the uh, the sort of the fun of, of that era are are familiar, but it was also a time where where businesses were being increasingly unregulated, and there was uh, a push against kind of uh, the tight regulation. So that also was there was a lot of loosening around how much um, scrutiny was being given to organizations. So in that way too, uh, it kind of was a perfect time for a, a figure like Gluck who could kind of roll in, have a great story to tell that really plucked at the heartstrings, but didn't require too much close uh, scrutiny. Well, there's a big gap in everything that I read between 1915 and 1927 when things start to look suspicious for Gluck. What is happening during those years? That's right. Yeah, he because he really had so much success with the Santa Claus Association. Yeah. And then he started using his kind of newfound profile and what he'd learned from fundraising around the Santa Claus Association and started applying it to, to other uh, causes. So the U.S. Boy Scout was was an organization, the, the volunteers he had tapped that first year. He started doing a lot of work with them as a fundraiser showing, you know, his success he'd had and what he started doing though is using, this was an organization that was actually a rival to the Boy Scouts of Association, the one we know today, uh, the Boy Scouts of America. It was a rival. So the U S Boy Scout that Gluck started working for was actually a rival to the Boy Scouts of America that we know today uh, and used their familiar name to most people to kind of questionably uh, raise funds. So Gluck actually got caught in a scheme where they were uh, kind of deliberately misrepresenting themselves as the Boy Scouts of America and fundraising off it. And the U.S. Boy Scout was a much smaller organization. They did very few actual activities besides fundraising. That was kind of their main goal. Um, and uh, Gluck started, you know, playing with that. During He, he started a, a group called the Citizen Secret Service, which was um, set up as, you know, you donate to this to help support the U.S., you know, do your patriotic duty, but didn't, and then they would send you a little membership card, but uh, didn't really do much beyond that. He ended up getting uh, in hot water with the U.S. government itself for sort of using the name Secret Service when uh, that was, he had nothing to do with it. That was, you know, a governmental organization that, that was not uh, related to Gluck at all. So he was doing a lot of these kind of fundraising schemes on the side um, that were getting smoked out pretty quick, uh, but the Santa Claus Association did not. It, it kind of kept going with uh, without issue. Um, part of that was because Gluck did start lowering his profile with the organization kind of during the early 20s when things really heated up on some of his other uh, schemes. Um, and during it all, he also was, he started working as an editor for the, for a time as at, at a newspaper so and was also doing his publicity work for other clients. He kind of was one of these guys who just always had, was working some kind of a scheme uh, in, in or usually three or four of them. And a lot of them were, were getting him into hot water, but not enough hot water to, uh, you know, lead to an arrest or anything more substantial, uh, fines for sure. And shutting down the organizations at times. So the U S boy scout was, it went all the way up to New York, uh, Supreme court where it actually was, um, uh, they, they were denied to be able to use the name boy scout in any of their, you know, to, to functionally continue. Um, and uh, a number of other things like that, those kind of schemes got uh, got exposed. But he continued doing the Santa Claus Association, sometimes more behind the scenes, but that uh, continued unperturbed. 
what is his final downfall? How does everything in the Santa Association uh, start to crumble? It was really one person that kind of led to the downfall because most just didn't really question what they were doing. It was a uh, a sweet Incredible. idea. Actually, I, I should correct that. There was questions early on from other charity organizations about what the Santa Claus Association was doing, but they weren't questioning where the money was coming from or where the money was going. They were questioning the motives of the children writing the letters. They were saying, this is not a trustworthy, uh, These we can't totally trust these kids. Why are we you know, giving donations to them? <laughs> we should go through proper charitable channels like the Charity Organization Society or the American Red Cross that were really, you know, have had decades of experience dealing with the you know uh, the, the the challenges of a you know a concentrated urban society like New York uh, and have ways of addressing the needs of poor families or kids in need not this sort of saccharine you know heart heart uh, string pulling letters that you know we don't really know if the kids actually need it you know for all of Gluck's talk of the uh, the investigations but so there were questions raised but it was usually about the motives of the kids not the people running the organization uh, so the person that really started pushing back on what the Santa Claus Association was doing was a, a gentleman by the name of Bird Kohler who was New York City's first uh, public welfare commissioner uh, he had previously run for uh, for governor and for mayor and had not been successful in that, but he had been the city's comptroller previously. He was sort of the accountant of the city, and he really was very good at that, at kind of looking at the books, uh, taking a kind of skeptical eye to the, the city spending or to uh, questionable accounting and, and uh, kind of sussing out where uh, the, you know, what, what actually is, is, is a worthy cause, a worthy expense. So he, part of his job was looking after the, the city's uh, hospitals and he really kind of whipped those into shape early in his tenure. But then he kind of shifted his focus to the public charities of the time, uh, public charity and, and private charities, which became under his purview, allowing, uh, put in a stricter licensing restrictions where uh, you couldn't, uh, you know, solicit uh, without a license from the city. Uh, the street solicitations he cracked down on, he created a uh, kind of a community of charity organizations like a that that would help uh, assess whether these charities were actually uh, worthy uh, just the kind of overhead bureaucratic approach that Gluck was protesting against when he started the association but also clearly uh, had a, a value because Kohler started, Shutting down a lot of these organizations, uh, you know, pulling their licenses, uh, just really putting a uh, putting a lot of restrictions on who could and couldn't solicit. Uh, he kind of it took him a couple of years before he got wind of Glock kind of through uh, the because he he and his one of his um, you know deputies were involved in the uh, the the exposure of the U.S. Boy Scout, so he had been aware of Glock and that. Uh, led him to kind of focus on the Santa Claus Association. He was around 1926 when he finally uh, started to, to shift focus on them. Uh, and he'd asked Gluck to bring in his books, bring in the accounting to the Public Welfare Office. Uh, Gluck uh, pushed back. This was just a couple of days before the Christmas holiday. So they were 
really busy at that time. So he refused to do it. Um, but they had kind of a back and forth where, um, you know, kind of, and a lot of this played out in the press where Kohler was, you know, calling for Santa to open his books. Gluck was saying, you know, this guy's really sticking it to Santa Claus. How dare he, this guy's got no, you know, no heart, doesn't care about the kids. Um, and, and eventually Gluck kind of gave some of his accounting to Kohler. Uh, it wasn't really what he had asked for. Kohler had actually sent a couple of his um, people to the Santa Claus Association offices to retrieve it uh, and were refused, but eventually Gluck uh, relented and gave some of his documents to, to, to Kohler. Wasn't much there. It was still sort of his, uh, it, it wasn't really what Kohler had asked. It didn't fully account where all, all the money that had come in, where all the money was going, but it was still enough for Kohler to, um, to, to, to raise enough red flags that Kohler, uh, felt there was plenty of questionable, uh, data points, things like these salaries that were being offered year round to, to staff, staff members when, or to officers when Gluck had claimed no, you know, salaries were being paid. There was a whole gift answering committee that Gluck claimed or gift buying committee uh, that was taking in tens of thousands of dollars that, you know, this was a group that was supposed to not have to do any of that. So that raised questions as well. There was a lot of other unaccounted for funding that was just left unanswered where, where this money went to. So it was enough for Kohler to say, this is a very questionable. It's clear that most of this money is not going to these, you know, to the children who are supposed to be getting it. Um, at the time, Gluck also started explicitly just soliciting funds, saying, send a hundred bucks to the Santa Claus Association. It was nothing about, you know, we're going to send you a letter. You can answer it. That had, that had kind of fallen by the wayside. They were still doing that, but it was much more these direct requests for money to be sent. Of course, I'm assuming there was never, there were never any plans for the actual building. No, that was never spoken of that really was never... <laughs> again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Was, okay, it, okay, okay. It, it was mentioned here and there, but yeah, it was, it was, there was no document saying, well, we're at, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. If we can just get to this next threshold, there was, you know, all this, there were blueprints made for it. There was all this publicity made around it, but nothing further discussed <laughs> after that kind of initial push. Now he, once Gluck is outed, um, is he ever prosecuted? What is his fate? Where does he end up? He's not. And that was one of the things Kohler kind of ran into. And that was one of his challenges with a lot of charities was the, the laws were still fairly lenient about charitable groups where you could kind of call them out. You could publicize that they're not doing the money's not going where it's supposed to go. Encourage people to donate to something more noble or more vetted. Um, but what so Kohler was kind of in a bind because he couldn't shut down the Santa Claus Association, but what he, and, and, and couldn't throw Gluck in jail for having kind of questionable books at the time. They, the laws just weren't that strict around it, but what he could do, one of the, the quirks of the association was to go to the post, uh, postmaster general. And, uh, that was the sort of source of Gluck's authority. His right to play Santa came from the post office department. So, they could also, what they giveth, they could take it away. And Kohler managed to get the, the post, postal inspector to do just that in 1928 and cut off the, uh, turn off the faucet of Santa letters. Uh, no longer, they, they changed their, because it was up to the local postmaster who could answer the letters. So they basically just denied Gluck the authority to answer the letters. Um, 
it they even went so far as to you know remove the letters from the office that they'd already received so it's this kind of you know poetic reversal of the final scene in uh, miracle on 34th street where all the letters are brought in you know in the courtroom and that kind of validates that chris kringle uh is in fact santa claus this was sort of the opposite where they were going in and taking the letters from him uh and removing uh, his authority to play Santa Claus. So it, it, it was a, that was kind of the, the main blow. Gluck tried to keep it going, uh, saying, you know, send letters to the Santa Claus Association directly and we can answer them there. But, um, the, the post office intervened and, um, ended up basically lo losing him the authority to answer Santa letters. And, um, he, he wasn't prosecuted, but it was sort of, humiliated um and and didn't really operate in new york city as a as a charitable um you know as a as a, as a runner of charities or of these kind of groups uh after that he you know in the early 30s he kind of uh headed down to florida and 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 started a you know real estate business down there and by by all indications uh you know was continued his sort of questionable you know <laughs> behavior but seemed to uh, stay away from you know skirted the law uh, as well but uh continued to be a teller of tall tales oh florida <laughs> <laughs> i can say that i'm from florida <laughs> nice nice yeah he, so, he found a nice home there for sure he yeah the <laughs> i'm sure they welcomed him <laughs> exactly <laughs> Um, so we ask our guest experts this question uh, every uh, Aftermath episode. At the end of the day, if you were to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for John Gluck and his Santa Claus Association con, who or what would that be? Is it too vague to say sentimentality? No, or maybe I love I should it. Say, maybe I'll say it's the Christmas spirit uh, <laughs> is, is to blame. Uh, because that really was what led to very little scrutiny of the Santa Claus Association for the longest time and such a warmth toward the group. It was just such a, was such a sweet story. And, and I do think Gluck, for all his questionable behavior and embezzling, there was good done by the group. They really did answer a lot of these letters. There were Christmas wishes answered. They did foster the Christmas spirit to a degree. Um, so, you know, on that front... He wasn't completely in it um, for his own self-aggrandizement and to, uh, you know, embezzle from the public. Um, there, there was good that came of it. But it's also interesting to look at what came after, uh, where the postal, the post office department kind of took over from there. They, they pulled back from allowing Santa letters to be answered locally as they had. Um, and that Operation Santa that came out of it continues to operate today and, and uh, still kind of on the, the, the template that Gluck had kind of pioneered, where you can go to the New York City Post Office, ask for three letters and answer them. Uh, and now they've input a lot of um, protections to avoid any, you know, these kind of scandals uh where uh the, you know the 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 addresses are being uh redacted and but you can still kind of uh you know personally answer these letters yourself um but there also are still scams that are related to it they, it was just a couple years ago it turned out actually a couple postal workers had been uh putting their own letters in and getting the public to buy gifts <laughs> for them but uh, and there was a couple other there was some other uh, kind of related incidences where there was sort of questionable things happening with it but i don't it's never going to go away you know we still are going to 
want to see these letters answered. And by and large, these are trustworthy kids or, you know, at least it's a noble, it's going to do a good thing. Um, and, and, uh, it will continue, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of hard for, for mere mortals to play Santa and inevitably we're going to slip here and there, but I don't think that kind of means it's not worth still trying. I love it. So in your opinion, scheming will always continue. What needs to stop is the Christmas spirit. Yeah. Put an end to it. Now, I, I, maybe I'd say it is, it's it's okay. There's always going to be a little bit of naughty uh, to, to go with the nice, I think. It's hard to avoid. Those two are inextricably linked. Thank you, Alex, for talking to us today. Uh, this has been fascinating. Thank you, Rebecca. It's been fun. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. And happy holidays to all of the alarmy. Happy, happy. Yes. We're, you know, you're probably, it's possible that you're in the middle of Hanukkah right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christmas is coming up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Family. You might be be drinking a hot cocoa. Singing songs, <laughs> maybe depression and anger and stress yes, too. Everything. All of the things. Yeah. <laughs> but nothing a little eggnog can't cure. Am I right? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, drink responsibly. Um, so it was fascinating to hear about this epic scheme, mm-hmm. you know, around the holidays. And I just couldn't believe. He sent the Christmas spirit to, he, he he would have blamed the Christmas spirit. You know, we did circle around that a little we bit. We circled around it. And, and we literally said, I don't know if I want to th- send the Christmas yeah. spirit to the alarmist jail. <laughs> he makes a good point, no, point, though, that because of that sentimentality or 
you know, our good nature that we were reluctant to scrutinize the actual mechanics of it all, right? You know, I guess you got to be wary about any charitable thing that's centered around fundraising because time and time again, we've exposed these cons with people who are saying, send us money for this new, you know, that's, that happens a lot. It's true. And as Alex put it at the end there, there's always a little naughty to mm-hmm. go with the nice, sort of two sides of the same coin. Right. Right. No, yes, two sides of the same it's, coin. In my mind, they were there. It's one side of one coin, and what's on the other side? No, no, it's two yeah. sides of the same. coin. I feel like I, it's uh, if a tree falls in the well, forest, do you hear it make a sound? It's kind of like if there is no naughty, is there even a nice? Mm, <laughs> co- compare and contrast. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't know if that really works out, but I'm yeah. stick with if, it. If, no, I'm with you. I think I think you're on to something. If there wasn't naughty, you we wouldn't understand what nice. It would was. just be. The, it, it would, would just be, be every general. day. It would just be just, that's it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess wouldn't be that bad, but you wouldn't feel that warmth you feel when someone does something nice for you. Right. I'm not. I'm not advocating for us to have naughty so that we can enjoy our nice. It's more of like right. a, this is You're more not. like a, a brain tease for your holiday break. <laughs> right. Okay. But I think there's a way we can uh, fold it into uh, what's happening sure. around the holidays. You know, if, if your family didn't annoy you so much, wouldn't, it, mm. wouldn't you be <laughs> um, when they're when we're all gathered and we're getting along? Maybe we wouldn't. Right. Appreciate or you'd never leave much. the nest. Right. True. Isn't that the whole That's thing? True like too. your parents yeah. start kind of making you do things and you start doing your own thing so that you both kind of can handle the trauma of separating in your adult lives. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Chris is making I, I quite a face. Alex. Right now. <laughs> yeah. I guess Alex was onto something deeper than we thought, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys are making some incredible breakthroughs here. Um, <laughs> On this aftermath episode, I thought we were just talking about a jolly old fat man, but apparently no. we're, you know, this is the good, this is good and evil moral relativism and all this stuff. Now, you guys were taking notes voraciously. Mm-hmm. Voraciously, I, see on this docu- I never just take document. notes unvoraciously. I always no. take notes with the voraciousness that is very, very voracious. Yes, it's how you approach your life voraciously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what were some of these notes? <laughs> Let's see here. Something that stood out to me was that um, when he was saying that like there wasn't many there weren't many questions about this in the beginning except for the kids themselves like it seems so cynical that we're like it's not the adults that might mess this up. It's yes. the kids who are scheming. It gets like yes, wow. that is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that's not very holiday <laughs> spirit to me. <laughs> Let's track down these naughty, you know, kids who are trying to scam the right. system. Meanwhile, <laughs> um, that was really funny to me. I also thought it was really funny that he was so good, that Gluck was so good at um, keeping track of, of the kids, right? Um, and, and what they were asking for, but didn't take uh, of the track of his own right, accounting. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, selective and, and, you know, and what was funny to me is that he, at being a, a con artist himself, he knew what kind of schemes the kids mm-hmm. could pull. Like he was right. ahead of it, you know, like sending Double the, gifts. Um, Not on my watch. the Boy yeah. Scouts. 
Yeah, yeah, not on my watch. And like right. sending the Boy Scouts to like check up on on the status. Right. Like, are these people right. rich or or do they are they really in need? Um, it's like you're not going to get one past Gluck because he's literally doing that kind Something of stuff. Something that himself. Alex said at one point. He said, you know, Gluck, he was a publicity man, and I thought maybe there would have. Uh, his, you know, desire for a good headline or like his excitement about getting good press. Maybe there is um, room for putting the media on the board for this one. Ah, I think you're right. I think we, that was an oversight. Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. they really fueled that. That Christmas, Christmas spirit. Fire. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if, and, and we rely on our media to, to scrutinize, um, these companies and and people in power um and there was just a complete lack of scrutiny as alex mentioned um repeatedly which was the Uh problem here that how this thing got out of control and a lack of regulation um at the time which was just the time i guess it was the jazz age doesn't matter where the money's coming from or going to squeedy beep 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 jazz age song (laughs) <laughs> that's the jazz. T- that's a very standard jazz um, four four mm-hmm. time four uh, four five time with the uh, arpeggio. I believe it was in the key of F minor. <laughs> uh. <laughs> We're so mm-hmm. lucky to have you. I'm not just a fact checker. No, no, you're. Full I'm a musician. Of knowledge. Now, mm-hmm. okay, he so so the jazz. I mean, the times had a lot to do with it. The the fact that charities. You know, he said charities were popping up left and more right lenient not a lot of war. regulation around them yeah it was all it like was all happening storm. really quickly yeah and uh and this is something like we talked about during enron and and uh, we've talked about this a lot but it's like can you blame lack of regulation like it's that that's like almost like an afterthought in a way right mm-hmm. we're all it's like we're it's all right. learning as we go it, it, right it's like until as things evolve and things get more complex and suddenly we're dealing with these new things it's like oh well i guess we have to create some rules around that because we never thought of that before it's like right what you can blame is lack of following regularly if the rules are in place already and you've already kind of figured it out this is not good and then people just and regulators just decide that they don't care that much or, or don't enforce these rules then that's that becomes I think a problem, but it felt like at this time the regulations weren't in place because they hadn't figured out what they needed to regulate right, yet. Right. Mm. Uh-huh. So what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail? Clinton? We threw John Gluck himself in jail for being kind of like the figurehead behind all of this. And we gave the big slap to income inequality, which is kind of our more broad stroke. <laughs> okay. Yes. Like what, what the right, need without for, the need for, um, or yeah, without the uh, extreme inequality, you wouldn't have kids writing in for charitable contributions in the first place. Right. Well, what do we think about? I mean, what do I? Yeah, what, what do, do we, What do I want to do here? Do we? Do we do? Do we slap the Christmas spirit? Um, I feel. I like mean, it could be kind of like um, allowing. Christmas spirit or sentimentality to let your guard down almost, right? Like it's more about like <laughs> using that as a justification I mean, to not really need to scrutinize something. Does that make sense? I, 
I mean, I guess that's true, except I would say that that more has to do with the people who are donating. Sure. And I think if we're going to go at somebody, it would be John. And John sort of using... Right. Using, using the that. Christmas spirit, mm. using the Santa Claus magic. Yeah, um, it's manipulative. Is a manipulative yeah. move because he knows he's not going to get resistance. That's the con. That's, that's why it works right. so that's well. Yeah. <laughs> I I like that. What if we what if we send to the alarmist jail, right? We we send John Gluck. I mean, he's right. already there. He's mm-hmm. he's in our alarmist jail. But when we explain to him why he's there, we mm-hmm. say it's because you manipulated the Christmas spirit. Right. Mm. You took advantage you, of you people's advantage. Good, uh, good nature. So I guess what we're what I'm saying is we're going to have to have a sit down with John yeah. Gluck hmm. um, at the alarmist jail. Well, we talk a lot about how we don't punish. We try and rehabilitate. Uh, yeah. rehabilitate. yeah, we he, he should know why he's there. So. Um and we say, no, no, you can't have that hot chocolate while we talk. Hey, 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 hey. hey. Uh-uh. Put that down. Yeah. <laughs> Put that down. <laughs> Put that hot chocolate down, John. We know it's this the holiday is... season, but yeah. focus up. Focus, focus up. up. You, you give, me, give me the hot chocolate and you think about what you've done. Right. <laughs> Maybe we should dock his uh, marshmallows. Maybe we should. Only two out of three. Yes, everyone... On on Christmas, everyone gets marshmallows we and their hot everyone. chocolate, a, except you know. for John Gluck. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds right. All right. I mean, look, it's the holiday. Uh, it's the holidays. We're in the holiday spirit. We're go- we're going mm-hmm. easy. We're letting everyone have their mm-hmm. hot chocolate uh, wherever they are, and uh, we hope everyone is having a wonderful time. Uh, <laughs> Take care of yourself <laughs> during. During the Let your guard down, yes. relax, Self-care. stay alarmed, but like, you know, ease up a bit. Stay alert. And also it's the season of giving and this episode makes you want to be a conscious, you know, we talk about conscious consumers, but we should be also be conscious donors. What are these charities that you're giving their money to? Learn a little something about them. Educate yourself on where the money's going so um, we know it's going to the right place. Yeah. And if you feel compelled, which is what I thought you were going to say, Chris, rate, review, and res- and and donate your review, <laughs> subscribe, subscribe. <laughs> because what better thing to give uh, the uh, alarmist uh, than you know the gift of more eyes on on our podcast? Uh, we appreciate you. We're thinking of you, and we hope you have a happy holiday. Stay tuned, because next week we'll be discussing The Nightmare Before Christmas. Erios. Powered by ACAST. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. 
it'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.